This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, Susanna, and I uh, want to extend my welcome also to all of you, especially those who traveled from afar uh, for this conference. And uh, those who brought rain with you, very much appreciate it. Uh, we need it so badly here. In about a month or so, uh, we will have commencement exercises here at UC Santa Barbara, and uh, I will have my farewell speech to the newly minted uh, bachelors. And in that speech, I have the following sentences, and I quote, you will have great opportunities, but also great responsibilities. I urge you to stand up proudly for science and its value in the fabric of human culture. Use it as an instrument of truth, while recognizing that there are human issues in which science is not the only or even the best arbiter. And then I will wonder, looking at those, the sea of, of graduates, I know that the students have all passed many tests, have gotten many A's, and are all well prepared, have their brain full of information and all of that. But have they mastered the art of communication? Have we taught them as scientists to communicate in a world where they will be either in a professional uh, environment or maybe also going on to, to an advanced degree. Will they indeed be effective communicators, especially in complex areas such as this one, the one topic of today, of sustainability, which is complex, interdisciplinary, draws from many different, different areas? Will they be able to communicate their science to those who don't speak necessarily their, their particular language. And this is particularly important in areas like sustainability that have such deep and far-reaching impact on society, on human well-being, and ultimately on our planet. In this room, we all believe uh, uh, that good decisions need to be informed by sound science physical and life scientists and engineers have increasingly learned the importance of the work that's done in other areas, in the social sciences, in the humanities, in the arts. And uh, they have a lot to learn. We can, we can learn a lot from those disciplines in how we need to frame our messages so that people understand the work that we are doing. So without further ado, I just want to, uh, again, thank Susanna and Ron for putting this together. This, this conference couldn't be more timely. It is at the very heart of one of the most important initiatives across campus, sustainability. And I also want to acknowledge uh, uh, Duncan Mellenchamp, if you don't mind standing up. Duncan is our strong supporter in this. He and, Su he and his... Uh, his wife, Suzanne, have done so much for this campus, and in particular, as far as this, the cluster of uh, chairs that, uh, that Susanna has mentioned, we are in the midst of, um, of recruiting uh, some phenomenal talent, and I'm, I'm very optimistic that this will really pull together our efforts in sustainability across campus even more, and I'm very, very optimistic. So uh, without further ado, I wish you all a very productive day. I will have to run off, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pierre. And, and I want to, to just add that we have been so 
fortunate to have the strong support of many deans on this campus. Pierre is, is a great supporter, but he is one of several, and, and um, I'm delighted that this cross-disciplinary initiative, this cross-campus initiative, has received so much attention and so much support. We are now ready to start the, the exciting part of the program. We are going to hear from some wonderful speakers today. Um, this first session is about communicating science content, and we have two wonderful speakers for you. The first one will be Jennifer Ouellette. She is a resident of Los Angeles, um, an author, an editor, a blogger. She is, I think, far more adept in social media than 99% of scientists that I know, including myself. Um, but but she, she has excelled also in communicating science in conventional ways. She's the author of several popular science books, which are, are beautifully written, and, um, and was extremely articulate last night at the movie, talking about the, the challenges that scientists face in communicating their ideas and in framing their ideas. So we, we certainly are very interested to hear about that. She's written for many newspapers. Those are... are um, Prestigious journals like the the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, the New York Times Book Review, and on and on. Um, she's obviously very experienced in this area. Um, she's also a blogger, and if you want to know how to talk to people about physics at cocktail parties, I gather she is the one person in the audience today who is the, the world expert in this area. Um, Jennifer, we are delighted to have you with us today. I know that you're no stranger to Santa Barbara. She was actually a writer-in-residence at the Kavli Institute a few years ago, um, and I'm glad to have this opportunity to introduce you to a broader spectrum of the UCSB campus. Welcome. Which one of these is changing my slide? This one? Okay, great. Okay, I have the unenviable task of giving you a whirlwind tour of content. <laughs> and as you've seen already uh, from the opening remarks and from the video that was playing in the beginning, that's a big thing. Let's see. Go to the next. There we go. So the problem that we have in science communication is a very simple one. There is an enormous knowledge gap between what scientists wish the average person knew and what they actually know. And the goal of science communication, I think most of us agree, is to close that gap for various reasons. Uh, you know, it just is not helpful to have that kind of gap between what's, you know, how scientists think and how the community thinks. And as we saw last night, having people who are ignorant of science and science and how the scientific process works can actually have, you know, very important long-term deleterious effects, I think, is the best way to put it. So traditionally, there, we thought of science communication as this sort of traditional science news cycle. You have a researcher, they're in their lab, they're doing their paper, and they discover that A is correlated to B with this like p-value of 0.56, and that goes through to the uh, press officer who has to find a way to turn that result into something that newspaper reporters want to cover. So they say very carefully, possible link between A and B. That trickles down to the newswire organ organizations, which somehow it gets simplified to A causes B, because they don't understand that correlation and causation are different. That trickles out to the internet, and then the cable news picks it up because they saw it on a blog somewhere, someone appalled that, you know, A somehow, you know, is, causes this really bad thing B, and we should actually, you know, sign petitions to get A taken off the market. And then down to local news, and finally it ends up with your grandmother wearing a tinfoil hat to ward off A. Um, you know, and parts of that still hold true, but I would argue that that's simply not 
really a, a good broad-based model for science communication because it's so much bigger than that. Um, that's kind of your traditional top-down approach. You know, now we don't have just this very simple linear trickle-down effect of science news and science communication is not the same as news dissemination. So we've tended to think of, of science communication as we want to get our work out there so that people are aware of it. Well, that's dissemination of information, and it's important. Communication is a two-way street, and the good news is there are more outlets for that two-way street than ever. It, we, what we now have is this vast ecosystem um, uh, where, where all these little things interact and link together in, in lots of interesting ways. It's a complex network, if you will. So now you'll have something come out in a press release, and maybe it'll make it into the print media, but first you're going to see it on a blog or a news site somewhere, you know, if you're lucky with a link back to the original paper. <laughs> Um, and someone will post the link to that on Twitter. It'll eventually trickle down into an actual news story, say, in the New York Times um, or a magazine article. Um, perhaps someone later on will make a fun little YouTube video or, or something, and that will, like, pop off that. Um, people will be talking about it on op-eds, on blog posts, on podcasts, you know, and then maybe at some point you'll be asked to appear on Science Friday because Ira Flatow heard about it, and he realizes this is something people are talking about this week, and he wants to cover it. And so it becomes this sort of cauldron of things that bubble around and interact with each other. And it's not just this very simple linear top-down thing. So understanding that, I think, is the first point that I want to make. The bad news is misinformation still proliferates. The good news is we can get our message out. The bad news is bad information gets spread just as easily as our good information, and people are not necessarily able to tell the difference. I mean, I talk about the, I used a physics example because that's my specialty. Um, the God particle, we can't kill that thing. We, <laughs> the Higgs boson got nicknamed the God particle early on. It has nothing to do with God. Everyone from Rush Limbaugh to Republicans in Congress misinterpret this to mean that particle physics is trying to basically disprove God, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with any of that. It's a very, very unfortunate misnomer that we are unfortunately stuck with because it spreads so quickly and so fast that it's now a meme. So why? You know, we talked this, about this a little bit last night, um, why misinformation proliferates and how, what we can do to combat it. And I think one thing that became very clear from the movie last night and the discussion after is that the traditional approach of, of what I think some uh, social psychologists call the information deficit model is not that effective. It assumes that people have a lack of understanding and don't accept scientific findings because they don't fully understand them. And so clearly what we must do is educate them. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a noble effort, and there are a few people who, if you educate them, you know, will change their minds. Um, in The Merchants of Doubt, it featured Michael Shermer, who uh, spent a period as a as climate change denier, and then he finally went and really looked at the latest research, and he said, well, you know, you can't argue with science. I was wrong, and he changed his mind. That is so rare, and God bless Michael Shermer for doing that. Um, for the rest of us, not so much. Uh, you know, people seem to just really resist the facts. You know, for some reason, particularly on something like climate change which, or uh, anti, the anti-vaccination movement, um, these are things that get tied into people's self-identity, how they identify with certain tribes. Um, I think in the movie last night, we kept hearing climate deniers talk about, well, you're on the other team, as if it's a sporting event. Um, and so if you come at them with facts, um, even if those facts are true, they feel like you are attacking not just their ideas, but who they personally are. And they are going to dig down, double down, and, and push back harder. 
the physics community had a version of this when the Large Hadron Collider was coming online back in the uh, few years ago now, 2007, something like that, 2006. And uh, there was a retired high school teacher who had worked briefly as a nuclear engineer who decided that the Large Hadron Collider was going to create black hole that would destroy the universe and tried to bring a lawsuit. And it was ridiculous, but he got equal time you know, on, on the news. And, and the news covered this as, well, maybe we should listen to this guy. Maybe the scientists haven't thought about this. Trust me, they thought about it. They had reports this thick that looked at those possibilities. And I myself wrote blog posts debunking this. Many prominent people, it appeared in, you know, debunking posts appeared in the New York Times, in science magazines. They showed up on the news stories. Nothing took until John Oliver did a segment on The Daily Show, a comedy show, where he essentially went to CERN, interviewed the guys at CERN, and interviewed Walter, um, the guy who was, uh, who was uh, uh, tr- bringing the lawsuit. And he killed him in this one moment where, you know, we had, we had the physicist saying there's no chance this is going to happen, and Walter saying it's a 50-50 chance. And so Oliver said... Walter, you keep going on about 50-50. What do you mean by that? He goes, well, something can happen, or it can't, so 50-50. And you just, there was this beat, and Oliver went, I'm not sure that's how probability works, Walter. And for some reason, that moment crystallized it in the public's mind, and now people still joke about the LHC destroying the world, but nobody takes it seriously, and we haven't heard from Walter Wagner since. So what can we learn from that? Here's one approach that works. You can recite facts all you want, but that one little moment of insight was all it took. It hadn't, you know, if, if all Oliver had done was recite a bunch of facts, he would not have been as effective as he was in that one moment. So why did it work? And part of the reason is it's not a lecture. Science communication is about making this fundamental connection. When I say it's a two-way street, I mean that. Um, uh, this is a, kind of like the Vulcan mind world, where you have to connect with how they think and get on their wavelength, so to speak. And as I said, the good news is we have more tools and outlets than ever before for doing that. Unfortunately, the public resonates at a very different frequency from scientists. They use different language. They have a different cultural background. And so you have to actually understand a little bit about, you know, how do you make those connections? How do you bridge those gaps? And a lot of what I do as a science writer has been based on that from the very beginning. My background was as an English major, so I actually do understand the the uh, horror that many English majors feel when, when, when approaching math and physics or something scary sounding like that. We have been trained through our cultural education to push back and resist, you know, all those things. It reminds us of that boring physics class that we took in high school, and we don't understand that we are actually, you know, denying ourselves a very rich um, part of human culture by not following up and not following science and being afraid of science. So I looked for ways to engage them. And one way I found to engage them was to find common ground to tie the science to what they already cared about. This, you know, is not particularly groundbreaking today because now everybody does it on blogs. You know, every time a movie comes out, there's a million blog posts about the science behind X, Y, or Z. And that's wonderful because, you know, Lawrence Krauss was doing it back in, like, 1980s with the physics of Star Trek. I had a book on the physics of the Buffyverse because I was a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. The reason that worked was because I was genuinely a fan of the show. And then I looked at the rules. I mean, physics is the rules of what makes the, ru- the world work. And I looked at the rules that had been set up in the fictional universe of the Buffyverse and compared and contrasted with real-world physics. 
Um, for calculus, I was always afraid of calculus, so I had I decided in my at 40 to learn calculus and wrote the calculus diaries about my journey. Again, a way of connecting, you know, getting people who were afraid of math, who had that little ooh, an equation. I don't want to look at that. Um, it, it, it's an involuntary reflex. You know, this was a way to kind of say, look, I'm like you, or I was like you, and if I can learn this, so can you. And bring them along with me on the ride, with humor, with real-world examples, and that sort of thing. Um, Rhett Elaine takes this one, lep- one step further. He is a physicist who blogs at Wired. Uh, he had a blog called Dot Physics, and now I think he's just been folded into the Wired um, several years ago, he became fascinated with that popular app, Angry Birds, which is a little game that you play on your phone. Uh, again, he genuinely loved the game, but he's a physicist. So he really ended up writing a series of blog posts analyzing the physics behind the birds' trajectories um, because he noticed that they all had different properties and things, like one would do a, do a parabola. You know, Was their vertical acceleration constant? And he used these to teach his students, and then he blogged about it. And the blog posts actually really get into the nitty-gritty. I mean, it, it's a little bit more of a teaching tool than what I do on cocktail party physics. And um, I actually had someone say, you know, leave a comment on my blog saying, for a less fluffy approach to this, go to go read Red Elaine. And I went, well, I'm happy to be the fluffy one because I'm the, I'm the gateway drug. And then they become less afraid and then they go read Rhett stuff and they learn a little bit more and then maybe they want to take a class. And this is how it works. Um, now, when you do this, you have to manage your expectations. Uh, this is an example of something I wrote for Slate. It ended up being in the food section, which I was very proud of because usually my stuff, because it's about physics, gets shuttled off into the science section and, and fewer people read it. You can tie it into something that people care about their food and their cooking. And so this was actually a research paper. Some MIT materials scientists were studying uh, the structural mechanics of thin shells, um, eggshells being one, um, but also chocolate eggshells and thin films and things like this. Coatings, essentially, is what they were studying. It's not really a sexy topic. If I pitched, you know, there's this really cool paper showing X equals Z, you know, on, on like, you know, you know, plastic model shells. No one cares. But I said, this is actually scientific proof of of the best way to crack an egg. And I ended up opening with that famous scene from Sabrina, the Audrey Hepburn movie, where she's taking that French class, learning how to make a souffle, and you do that one-handed crack. And... um, and I asked the researcher when I interviewed him, I'm not going to be able to go into really a lot of in-depth science here because I have, to, I have to get like one or two messages across. What's the one thing you care about? And he says, you know, if you could just get people to understand that there's a difference between strength and rigidity, material scientists would thank you. So I made sure to, to fit that message in. And it ended up being a, a very popular, well-emailed uh, thing on the site. But if I tried to be a little too elaborate, it wouldn't have worked. So it doesn't always, sometimes the challenge is really big. Um, I uh, wrote a feature for an online thing called Quanta Magazine that got excerpted at Scientific American, as you can see, on a raging debate going on in theoretical physics right now on uh, black holes. Um, And if you look at it, there's a lot of big ideas, okay, and they're scary sounding. ADS-C of T duality, Hawking radiation, non-locality, black hole entropy, effective field theory, monogamous quantum entanglement. How do you even begin to engage a reader with this sort of thing? Well, it turns out you have one very easy way to an entry point into that, which is what happens when you fall into a black hole. We used to think that when you cross that point of no return, the event horizon, that you wouldn't notice anything special until you got near, like, the singularity where gravity would get so strong it ripped you to shreds. Some string theorists said, no, wait, it might be that as you actually get burned up in a wall of fire right at the event horizon and you never get a chance to get ripped to shreds. So you die horribly, but, you know, you get to choose maybe which one you want. 
And then to present the arguments, it really boiled down to a logic problem. It boiled down to you have three tenets that physicists love. Not all three can be true at the same time. Pick one to sacrifice. Which do you choose? And, um, you know, it's kind of Raphael Busso called it the menu from hell. And it made it... People went, oh, okay, there's a lot of scary-sounding words here and big ideas, and ultimately we're talking about the fabric of space-time, and I'm scared of it, but I do understand that this is just logically not possible to have three things that cannot all be true. And I understand the concept of picking something to sacrifice. Um, You can't do anything like that if you're in broadcast media. Um, My husband uh, is a physicist at Caltech, Sean Carroll. This is Lisa Randall, a Harvard physicist. Both appeared on the Colbert Report to hawk their books. Stephen Colbert, when he he had his parody show, The Colbert Report, he's now taking over for, I think, Letterman? Yeah. And... um, so he loved having scientists on, he said, because nobody. His, his, it, was, it was satire. He played a right-wing host who was really stupid, and he would play dumb and be really obnoxious. And scientists, he said, were great because they didn't get rattled. They could always fall back on their science, and they would just, you know, they, would, they were the perfect straight man. So the way you tailor your message to fit this format is the producer spent a lot of time with Sean on the phone before he appeared on the show saying, let's go over your message one more time. You're going to have, it's a 10-minute segment. Five of that's going to be you, tops. You better have your message down. Pick two things and repeat them over and over again. Those are the things, and that's your five minutes, and that's what you can get across. And she worked with him to craft that message. And it was a very, very good um, exercise for him because... Boil, being able to boil it down to those those two or three key ideas, you know, even if you end up writing an entire long book, what sells the book ultimately is going to be those two, three key ideas. So it's a, it's actually a worthy goal to spend going over and over and trying to figure out what that core element is. Uh, let's see. Um, I was on the Craig Ferguson show, the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. Um, as a shy person, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done. Uh, but uh, but his pro- approach is a little bit different. Um, but the lesson I learned from being on Craig Ferguson is that you want to go with the flow. He's much more easygoing. One of the first things he usually does is, I mean, you talk to his programmer, and she comes up with questions, and she gives them to him. And the first thing he does when you come out is rip up the questions. He's an improv guy. He's a comedian. And he, and he basically wants... He wants people to kind of have a give and take with him, and he wants to riff on what you're saying, and you kind of just got to go with it. You know, you can plan all you want, but you got to, like, throw the playbook out the window with Ferguson. And he asked a very, very good question on phantom traffic jams and what caused them. And there is a very good answer, and with time, I could craft that into a two- or three-minute soundbite, but I didn't have it. <laughs> and um, it, was not, it was too complicated to really explain, so I said something that was half right, and then he took off and started talking about phone cars or something, and we just moved on. Um, again, it's not a lecture. This is not actually about information dissemination. This is about getting science out there, getting it talked about and laughed about in the broader culture, and the other corollary I learned is that likability matters. If you win their hearts, you win their heads. I actually ended up winning the Golden Harmonica. What he does is he would have guests choose to either you know, have an awkward, uncomfortable silence or attempt to play a harmonica. And if you can produce a recognizable tune, you win the Golden Harmonica. And I managed to crank out Home Sweet Home because I used to play when I was like 12. Um, it was kind of borderline. Honestly, it was a pity uh, award. And it was, because, it was because the audience loved that I tried. And they just cheered until he gave me the, uh, the golden harmonica. Um, but that's something to remember. Uh, because, again, you can hit them with all the facts you want. But if they like you first, 
um, they might be able to follow you, and, and, and if they see you as a person and like you and, and as a person, they will want to hear what you're saying. Um, my husband actually did a debate uh, with William Lane Craig on atheism and cosmology, a God and cosmology. And you know, it was on enemy ground, so to speak. It was at a theological seminary in New Orleans. And you know, so honestly, there was like the only other people who were on Sean's side were the people that he picked on his panel. <laughs> and everybody else just you know, hated the atheists. But here's the thing. He was so likable that you could just, I could visibly watch the, 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 the Christians in the audience kind of going, we actually like him better than William Lane Craig, and we're just really, really upset at what he has to say. But who knows that he might have planted a seed there, that you know, two or three people in that audience might you know, then, because they liked him, start thinking a little more deeply about these issues. Um, changing minds is a long-term endeavor. We're going to play a long game in science communication. We can measure short-term effects all we want, but we don't actually know 10 years down the line what's going to change a person's life, something that we said 10 years earlier, um, and that we might have planted a seed that bore that. It just took a long time for that to bear fruit. Um, Experiment with new and emerging formats. Don't be afraid of trying out Twitter or starting a blog or Pinterest or these various things. It might not be for you, and you don't have to do it forever, but play with the new tools that are out there. Make a YouTube video. Appear on a podcast. Start your own podcast. I uh, have have been doing for the last couple years this sort of uh, talk show in Second Life with avatars that's also broadcast as a podcast on Blog Talk Radio. That's the astrophysicist Jan Levin. One of the fun things is, first of all, where else do you get an hour to really sit down and talk to a scientist in depth about these ideas? Uh, People can come and listen to it later if they're not on Second Life. And I get to choose what kind of avatars uh, scientists pick. Um, Oftentimes they just want it to look like themselves, but Jana wanted to be a unicorn. And Simon Dedeo, who's a complexity scientist, appeared as a a, uh, swarm of butterflies, which was my personal favorite. And also make it personal. Again, this gets to the likability factor. Um, I think I said last night, uh, we don't often realize that most people never, ever meet a working scientist. I don't think I met a working scientist who wasn't a teacher of some sort until I was in my 20s. Um, so, you know, and I'm, you know, and I was, you know, reasonably well-educated, middle class. It's not like I was living in a ghetto somewhere, okay? I mean, it's just, we just, there's just not a lot of uh, give and take between those worlds. So we uh, started this program last year in, in, in Los Angeles. We'd invite a scientist. It would be in a private home. It was a group of friends uh, and their friends so that everybody felt comfortable. They were not afraid to ask dumb questions. They got to know the fi- scientist. He, would give some in- he or she would give some informal comments. You've got John Preskill there, Kevin Hand from JPL. Um, and uh, many of them are actors, actresses, producers, writers. Um, we have some artists. We have some science communicators there. It's a very good mix of people. And they, but the one thing they love is science. In fact, in the corner, you have a group called the Sirens. They're actresses who are basically trying to promote science outreach and education and awareness um, among, uh, in, in the entertainment industry. I'm going to try and wrap up quickly because I don't want to take up too much time. But that Hollywood connection is very, very interesting. From 2008 to 2010, I was the founding director of a program called the Science and Entertainment Exchange that the National Academy of Sciences uh, set up. Um, It's basically an exchange program uh, for science consulting, at least in theory. I mean, that's how it was originally conceived. Um, And my job essentially was to build bridges between these two worlds. We would get calls in from writers, directors, uh, producers saying, we're doing a show and there's a scene where there's some science in it and we need an expert in X. And I would find a good person for that. 
And it was not necessarily like the Nobel Prize winner. Um, it was possibly, you know, a young grad student or a postdoc or a young research faculty who was a little bit more adept at science communication, who understood the needs of narrative, because that is something that is different um, when, you, when you're consulting. Um, it's not about getting the science 100% correct. The science is always in service to the story. So a good consultant understands that. Um, but we're kind of in a golden age of, of science and entertainment. Hollywood, there's actually a growing contingency of people in Hollywood who really do love science. Um, a lot of the stories that they want to tell now have scientific components to them, um, and they're forging these relationships. Ultimately, I think the important uh, part of what comes out of the science and entertainment exchange is going to be the lasting relationships. And we've already seen examples of that. The movie Interstellar uh, came out um, just uh, last year. This is Kip Thorne working with Jessica Chastain. Um, this movie happened because Kip Thorne was a science consultant, knew Carl Sagan on contact years ago, dated Linda Obst briefly, um, and they remained friends. And she introduced him to Steven Spielberg, and Spielberg wanted to write a scientifically accurate as possible movie that could still be entertaining. And for 10 years, they worked on it. And in the end, Spielberg had a falling out with Paramount, and Christopher Nolan ended up directing it. And let's say that Nolan cared a little bit less about the science. But the, but the, uh, the grain of Kip's ideas still got in there. And among other things, um, he got to, he, it developed a scientific tool. He ended up developing these wonderful computer simulations for um, how to depict a three-dimensional black hole. And as a result, in the movie, you have one of the best cinematic depictions of what a black hole would actually look like. Um, right up there in the top left-hand corner because of the work Kip did. And the computer modeling work he did ended up being very useful for physicists in turn. So that's a wonderful example of that interplay and, and how those sort of interactions and relationships can play out. Um, and sometimes it takes a while. Uh, when I first joined the exchange, my husband and I consulted with the staff writers on Bones, which is a crime detective show, and she's a forensics uh, bone expert, and uh, they wanted to do something with, you know, death of a physicist, or a murder of a physicist, or death by physics, and um, it turned out that, you know, they really didn't know anything about physics. We had, to t we had to explain to them that, no, physicists would not be meeting at Mensa, and, you know, that they would be having, like, you know, a regular, you know, physics conference devoted to it, and we, they actually, you know, they, they wanted to hear about Publisher Parish and some of the cultural aspects. And we really only had a couple hours with them. And we saved them from the, the worst mistakes. You know, they, they got a, a couple of the things were just kind of, eh. They don't, clearly don't understand the culture of science. But in the end, six years later, they called back. Um, and they had this other show, that they, episode they wanted to do featuring a physicist, a physicist whose gymnastics daughter is murdered. And the uh, FBI de detective, Booth, uh, thinks that he's not reacting with, with sufficient emotion, therefore he's a suspect. And Brennan, who is the scientist, says, no, you know, he's like me. He just he expresses it differently. And uh, what they wanted to do, Richard Schiff played the physicist, and at the very end, the final scene, he replaces the research equations on his board with a mathematical poem to his daughter's life and the equations of movement. It showed her at rest. It showed her learning to walk. It showed her like doing tumbling. It showed her on a balance beam um, or a trampoline. And you know, here she is being carried on his shoulders. Um, and I, there's not a dry eye in the place. Um, in fact, uh, a blogger called TV Mouse basically said, you know, guys, I cried about a math equation this week. Um, that's the power when you, when you really marry science to the story. And the equations were accurate. Sp you know, Sean spent two days on set writing the equations and, and, and interacting with the, the, the actors and the writers and the staff people there. Um, 
and it, it really was a gorgeous scene. It, uh, I don't remember what the title of the episode was, but it's worthless. It's worth watching. Um, and that brings me to my final point. Uh, there's this whole new culture that's come up of TV recaps. Um, like I said, I mean, the, the, I cried about a math equation this week. This woman has been basically watching Bones and writing summaries um, of the episode with spoilers. And they do it for Game of Thrones. They do it for Mad Men. They do it for everything. So when uh, WGN America, a small cable show, uh, launched a new series called Manhattan, a fictionalization of the Manhattan Project, um, uh, wanting to explore science and secrecy and the impact it has both personally and professionally and on the nation, um, they chose this area era in order to do it. They fictionalized it because they didn't want you know they didn't want to get you know people complaining all the time about the historical accuracy. They wanted some freedom, some creative freedom to create these stories. And so at Scientific America, and I started recapping it um, every week and, and, and squeezing in some background science. You know, by the way, this little element, here's what's actually going on in that scene, and here's the actual physics you know, that, that, that formed the basis of that. And as a result, um, I got to know the showrunner, and I did a Q&A with him. And later on, someone was asking him about you know, how it got renewed for a second season, in part because myself and a guy at Popular Science and someone else started recapping it. And he says, thank God for the TV recaps, because we never would have gotten renewed, in part because nobody gets WG in America on their cable. <laughs> um, it's actually hard to find. So you have to watch it on Hulu Plus if you don't get it. And in my case, I actually threw myself at the mercy of the PR department, so I got screeners. Um, so I'm going to end there, but I'm going to end on this uh, repeating once again. All of these things feed into this ecosystem. Everything that we do in every single format is not standalone. It's not just one thing. It's all the things interacting together in this vast ecosystem. And you also have to bear in mind that it's a never-ending process, and we're playing a long game. It's easy to get discouraged. I certainly was feeling discouraged after watching Merchants of Doubt last night. But um, we persevere. <laughs> and over time, you do see changes. You do see cultural shifts. Uh, it took 50 years, we, as we learned last night, for the tobacco companies to finally get held accountable. But it will happen. And I think that is the one note of hope on which I'd like to end. Thank you, Jennifer. That was amazing. We're going to have questions at the end of the session. I'm sure there are some there already for Jennifer. Um, now I'd like to introduce our next speaker, who's, I'm not sure if he has slides. Um, our next speaker is uh, Richard Hutton, and Richard is no stranger to UCSB. He has been with us um, as executive director of the Carsey Wolf Center and adjunct professor in the Film and Media Studies Department, but is now taking on a new role as chief strategist for Octos with the Office of Research at UCSB. Um, he comes from a distinguished career in film production. He has won all kinds of awards, Emmys and Grammys and Peabody's for his documentaries on science um, in the areas of intelligent design, emotional life, evolution, um, an, an incredibly distinguished um, CV full of accomplishments in the area of communicating science to, to broad audiences, and we are delighted to have you with us today, Richard. Thanks, Susanna. Appreciate it. And um, Jennifer, you uh, were majored in English, is that right? I majored in Russian history, so um, you really have a 
pair of complete incompetence telling you how to communicate science. It's great. Um, you know, Jennifer's talk, I think, was right on the button when it came to talking about the ecosystem of media and how that works um, in sciences and how science tries to reach out to non-scientists in order to cross that chasm uh, that exists between what scientists know and don't know and what the public understands. Um, I'm going to do something slightly different and got really additive to what Jennifer did. Um, and I'm going to talk about in communicating science to the public, how do you decide what to include and what to leave out? How should you think about conveying the science while embedding it in, in a narrative? The challenge is to take something that lives in one sphere and to connect it successfully with another. If you think about it as kind of a Venn diagram, you have over here sort of the big science sphere with all the facts and the information in it. And over here you have the big audience circle with its predispositions, its biases, misinformation, limited attention span, and so on. And then right in the middle is this tiny little sliver where the two meet, where your content and your audience can converge through the framing, positioning, and dissemination of the information. This morning I'm going to talk about a case study of one of my own projects because it's a kind of easy way to go deep on it and to illustrate the challenge of presenting science accurately and simply, but not simplistically. It shows one way of how we can approach this problem and try to solve it. In 1998, Paula Absel, who's the executive producer of NOVA, asked me to create Evolution, an eight-part series, an eight-hour series on the theory that is central to all biology, and essential information, both for scientists, of course, and also for the public at large, because, frankly, if you don't understand the nature of evolution, you don't understand the nature of life on Earth. From the get-go, an idea like evolution presents a challenge to a communicator. First, how do you divide a series like that up? Television is a rigid, unforgiving format. At, C at PBS at the time, one-hour show used to be 53 minutes and 47 seconds. Not 53 minutes, maybe. Not 54 minutes, maybe. But 53, 47. So if you're doing an eight-hour series on a single topic, how do you make sure that each show not only lasts exactly 53, 47, but deserves to be exactly that long? You can't take a topic that deserves a half hour and stretch it into the full 53 minutes. And you can't take something that requires hours and just fragment it and put it almost incomprehensibly into a, a smaller package. So then, how do you take these eight hours and make each show an appropriate-sized module in and of itself, and then string a bunch of these appropriate-sized modules together in a way so that each module can both stand on its own and lead logically into the next one? That's the sort of challenge of a multi-part series on, on, on television. Finally, how do you take the science in each of those modules and do three things? First, how do you simplify it without dumbing it down? Remember, we're, we had a mere eight hours and evolution's been going on for 3.7 billion years. So we had basically 141,000 years of evolution for every second of television time. Second, what how do you take what can be dry, non-contextual stuff and give it context? Our audience was not scientists. Evolution was a primetime show for a national audience and therefore needed to be interesting to our viewers. And we wanted to make the information, in a sense, sticky memorable. And to do that is not just a matter of giving the information, as Jennifer pointed out so eloquently, but also doing it within an emotional context or a humorous context. Well, I guess humor is a form of emotion, isn't it? Tragedy, humor, there you go. And third, how do you use storytelling as a way of framing the science and giving a drama without allowing the story to overwhelm the inf information? 
To me, this is the holy grail once you've solved for the first two, because this is where you actually translate the science into something that is both specific and ties into the audience's emotional state. It's where, as a producer, you, say, you ask the question, what's the story? Who are the characters? What's their quest? What are their challenges? And how do they confront those challenges, all without losing sight of the science? Okay, so we divided the series up. For evolution, that meant actually seven shows. The first show was called Darwin's Dangerous Idea, and it was actually a two-hour special. I guess that makes it like 107 minutes. Uh, that explored both the life of Charles Darwin, how he developed his theory, and the current state of that theory. To satisfy the story, storytelling aspect of the show, we decided to take a big risk and tell Darwin's story through drama. Not through recreations, but a full-on five-act period costume drama interspersed with documentary segments echoing the same ideas, a kind of Nova meets Masterpiece Theater. The other six shows in the series dealt with elements of evolution in rough descending order, shows on deep evolutionary principles, extinction, the evolutionary arms race between competitors, predator, and prey, sex, the explosion, the Big Bang which, uh, the, uh, of the human mind, and finally the controversy surrounding evolution and religion. Rather than try to take you through the entire decision-making process, I'm going to really talk about one sequence that we did and give you one way of how we tackled or tried to tackle this challenge and then show you the footage that came out of it. In addition to executive producing the series, I co-produced, directed, and wrote one of the episodes on extinction with a producer named Kate Churchill. Now, there have been five major extinctions in the history of life on Earth. And the third show, the extinction show, asked, are we on the cusp of a sixth? and are human beings the trigger. Clearly, the rate of extinction is, is skyrocketing, and habitat destruction and invasive species are two of the major causes, and so we covered them in the show. But we also wanted to explain a bit about how human incursion affected extinction as well. So we researched the issue pretty thoroughly, and then we went looking for a story that could illustrate it, and we came upon Alan Rabinowitz. At the time, Alan worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society in New York City. Uh, he had become widely known for his work studying big cats, lions, tigers, and most famously, jaguars in South America. Um, he's an amazing kind of guy, and what he was trying to get to was this, co this notion of keystone species in an ecosystem. The kind of, if you think what a, of what a keystone is, you think about uh, one of those uh, wonderful arch and that stone in the middle that makes the arch stable. Well, keystone species in an ecosystem are those species that make the ecosystem stable, and without them, the ecosystem changes dramatically and in some cases no longer ceases to exist. In any case, after several meetings, he agreed to participate in our film, and he suggested that we all go to Myanmar to look for an endangered species of deer. Well, we'd had our hearts set on big cats, but Alan was our guy, and at that point he was looking for deer, so we were interested in deer. To make a long story short, we spent months trying to get permission uh, from the Myanmar government, and they said yes, and then at the last minute they refused to give us visas, and we were stuck. And then Alan said, well, we also have this project in Kankrajan, which is Thailand's largest national park. We're trying to ev evaluate the tiger population using camera traps. You want to try that? Yeah, we did. <laughs> We really did. So Kate went with Alan to uh, Thailand to look for tigers, and we hoped to, to find a story that would both emotionally involve people and also illuminate the precarious nature of the balance of life in forests around the world. The story looked 
just from the outside as if it might fall into the genre of storytelling called the hero's journey. It's kind of a classic form. The hero moves from the ordinary world, goes on an adventure, faces challenges or crises, solves a problem, receives a reward, and returns home changed. As you can imagine, since we were making a documentary, we had no assurances that this would, would actually happen. But as documentarians, you turn on your camera and you take a chance. And Alan was a strong character, Kenka John was cool, and anything can happen in a national forest. And things could, in fact, go very, very wrong. As an illustration of both how good intentions and luck, good luck for us, maybe not so much for Alan, play important roles, I'd like to show you the first part of that story. We're in grave danger of the empty forest syndrome. Having a beautiful, seemingly intact forest on the surface, but inside that forest, the natural components which maintain the flow of energy through the system, it's disrupted. Now people say, so what does it matter if one component's gone? What if you don't have the Sumatran rhino? What if the, the civet species are all gone or other things? But each thing has evolved to play an incredibly important role within this complex puzzle. Alan Rabinowitz wants to know if Kenka John has escaped the escalating rates of extinction found elsewhere. So he and his colleague, Tony Lynham, collect data on the actual number of animals living in the park, especially the carnivores. Large carnivores such as tigers are often the first animals to be wiped out from a system. If you go into an area and find relatively abundant sign of large carnivores, you know what you're dealing with by necessity, is a very healthy, at least seemingly stable, natural habitat. The typical habitat works this way. Sunshine, nutrients, and water make plants grow. The plants are eaten by herbivores, which in turn are eaten by carnivores. About 100 pounds of plants generally sustain about 10 pounds of herbivore, which sustain about one pound of carnivore. Healthy carnivores mean a healthy forest. When Alan Rabinowitz was here last, the news about the forest was good. More than 10 years ago, I landed here in Gengajang National Park. We got down in here, and I was very pleased to see that the place was beautifully intact in terms of the vegetation. But more importantly, I was able to find tiger sign virtually everywhere I looked. I would hike through small rivers and there'd be families of otters starting to swim around me. Elephants came to my camp at night. Gibbons sang every single morning. Hornbills flew overhead all the time. All the signs of a healthy, intact, relatively unhunted forest were there, which made it probably one of the few places in Thailand. And in fact, when I surveyed throughout the entire country at the end of the survey, it became even more clear that Genga John was easily 
the most pristine, the most untouched piece of forest left in this entire country. But is it the same today? On a search for life, every stop offers more clues. Fresh elephant, nice size. His cat, small cat. The group uses well-traveled elephant paths to navigate the forest. An elephant trail is a trail that elephants are walking on constantly, and every time they walk past this this vine, they just push it back this way and then push back this way, and all of the bark has started to come off. And Three other teams are in the park, each retrieving special cameras with motion sensors, which were carefully placed a month before. Called camera traps, they take a photo when triggered by an animal walking by. Oh, batteries, I guess. The camera's taken a whole roll of film and it's rewound to those 36 shots taken. What the camera traps will help us do is start wrapping some numbers around these things, helping us quantify. It's one thing to say, boy, sign of tiger is everywhere. It's another to say, just on this one survey, we have taken pictures of a minimum of X numbers of tigers. The cameras serve as an unseen observer. In one day, a camera trap can catch more tigers on film than Rabinowitz's team could see in months. I'd say tonight, camp here. Tomorrow morning, go down the stream and check out this area and check out what we've got in terms of... So that's where you think we might have Siamese crocodile. Yeah. That would be neat. That'd be something else. The Siamese crocodile is a species that 30 years ago lived throughout the tropical forests of Asia. But they have been relentlessly hunted for their skins. Not a single one has been seen in over a decade. This is Tony. These are some fresh ones, right? Oh, yeah, those are fresh. Siamese crocodile, a species thought to be either virtually extinct or extinct in this country and incredibly endangered throughout all of its existing range. If we prove the existence of a population of Siamese crocodile in Genkajan, that in itself, apart from everything else, will make this one of the most important areas in the entire country. Over on the other side of the bank there, we saw tracks of Asiatic black bear which is the largest bear species in Thailand, and also tracks of a large tiger. So we call this place Carnivore Corner because it's got all of the three carnivores. With another roll of film and sightings of carnivore tracks, the team presses on to pick up the rest of the cameras. But suddenly, there's a hitch. Camera's gone. They're kidding. The camera's gone. Who the hell is it? Somebody, somebody stole it. Damn it, somebody stole it. Yeah, you can see it's been cut. It's been cut right here. Somebody's come in and cut the bamboo and taken the trap. It could mean we have a thieving problem. Or it could mean... That this area is m- being more hunted than we think it's being hunted. Gone. 
upside down mud, no? It's gone. Ramifications of losing these cameras. There's a lot of ramifications. In terms of data, it's a major loss. It takes an incredible amount of planning and time and effort to even get to do an area like this. This area was chosen for its remoteness. The fact that it's quite obvious that these cameras are being both stolen and vandalized is very bad. I've never seen this in my 20 plus years in the field. It looks like somebody's come along in front of the camera, taken a picture of themselves. They didn't want that to happen. So they tried to take the camera. Tried to slash the, the lock, but the, the lock has got a steel cable on it, and they couldn't take it off. So instead of taking it off, they, they tried to destroy the picture, destroy the film. So they've got a knife, and they've just slammed the knife into the top of the camera. It doesn't surprise me that people are anywhere anymore in this world. I'd be more surprised if we found a spot where there really weren't any people penetrating there. A lot of people ask me why I do the work I do. There's a lot of reasons. But basically, I'm just tired of watching animals die. So there, <clears throat> there we've got it. Um, footage that depicts the science accurately and offers us a cliffhanger as um, in traditional storytelling. When we edited the complete story, we carried it through a couple of more scenes that I don't have time to show you here, of Alan talking to villagers to find out what was going on, of them trying to tra track down the poachers and find out where they were and, and who was actually uh, causing this damage. And then we moved on to other stories in the film. But in the final film, we then came back to Alan's saga because, of course, as a story, it needed an end to go with the beginning and the middle. At the end of the expedition back in Bangkok, Alan got the exposed film processed. It was delivered to the hotel, and of course, our cameraman was nowhere to be found. So Kate wouldn't let Alan look at the pictures. I can tell you that stretched goodwill a little bit, but eventually the cameraman reappeared, and Alan and Tony began to look at the photographs. And so I have this small piece at the end which sort of concludes the story. The other teams have collected all their cameras without trouble. 33 rolls of film in all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look what at this. What you got here? <laughs> that's a that beauty. But I got a better one for you. Look at this. Wow. Now that's a nice, that's a nice picture. Tiger and here. leopard. Another leopard. Another tiger. <laughs> there we go. Holy cow. Look at that. I'm assuming oh, this is sandbar deer. That's a nice that's tiger. That's a really nice well, That's tiger. a nice shot. Now, this is really interesting. Poachers or local people or something, really. This is the Pepper River. This is the second route. This is this the is... one where I walked up 10 years yeah. ago? That, yeah. that one? That right. is some area. Look at this tape here. Tape here, yeah. Whew. Look at that. We've got... Great. 
Look at this. Simon's oh, crocodile. there it is. <laughs> Look at that. Crocodile. This is the first recent photo of Siamese crocodile in Thailand. While we were sleeping, while we were walking, while we were swimming in the river, all these animals were wandering around us. The tigers were walking around us, the leopards. The Siamese crocodile might have been in the water at another part of the stream at the same time we were jumping in and cooling off. It was definitely near us when we were standing on its beach. I know the tigers heard us, probably several saw us. I know that the elephants froze there in the forest and we went by as if, wow, what a neat forest. There are still places left where the natural evolutionary processes are going on. Most of my career involves documenting species on the verge of extinction. But every now and then, you get a place like this and you say, it's not lost yet. It's not gone yet. Really? That close. Knowledge is... So there we were, presenting science in a way that was simple but not simplistic, and framing it in a narrative with all the elements of story, an arc, compelling characters, a quest, a challenge, drama, and a reasonably satisfying conclusion. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.